Welcome to the Faces podcast. We're a Christian and Muslim charity working to build resilience within faith communities against child sexual exploitation and other forms of harm. Today we're going to be exploring the broader safeguarding and welfare impacts of the national lockdown and the pandemic and how we as faith communities have been supporting people during this time. I'm Melissa and I work for Faces. And I'm Tony and I'm a leader of one of the churches in Luton Hope Church. I'm Peter and I work based at um, St Mary's Church in the town centre where I'm working peace and reconciliation across the Luton community. And I'm Lucy Shuker, and I'm the Director of Research at Youthscape. So today we wanted to talk a bit about safeguarding and how the pandemic and the national lockdown has kind of changed how to safeguard children and families. And so we wanted to look at that from the perspective of working in places of worship and also from a youth work perspective and just think about what are some of the ways we've had to adapt our safeguarding practices and what kind of support we're still able to offer children and families, even though we can't always be together in person. So the first question I wanted to ask is of of all of you, really, is just to tell us a bit about how churches are operating differently over the last few months and perhaps some of the some of the ongoing changes that you have to keep considering as we kind of go through go forward. Yeah, I don't mind telling you what's going on in in my community. So uh, we have about 20 children who are part of our church and we would normally have a kind of kids club for two different age groups that would be happening during the main Sunday service and we've experimented with a bunch of different things since lockdown but essentially it's gone online like lots of other things have and uh, what we're doing at the moment is twice a month we the the adults everybody calls in all the families call into a zoom call but we have a short hello it's a little bit like you'd have a coffee time where everybody chats and we we have maybe a a song and we do a few few bits and pieces but the adults essentially then all leave the call <laughs> and the kids take over and we have a, an online kids club so parents um, are sitting with their kids and the kids are all calling in we're doing something online and then the other thing we've done is try to when when we were allowed to do it when we were allowed to do bubbles and small groups of six or so we would send families or, or a couple of families out into into the woods on a walk and we would do something reflective with questions that engaged the families and the children in nature. So we would talk about rain and we would talk about changes in the weather or spring or summer and different things and, and just connect it to faith in some way and have some time to reflect. So that, that's that been quite some, and that felt like, I mean, very unusual for church, but like much more normal for family life compared to sitting on Zoom. It's been really interesting. And I think that's so important because it's something that's so simple actually to do and to organise. But especially now when all the usual places we might go to have fun and, you know, entertain the kids are closed. But just remembering that there's all that sort of other stuff around us that we can have access to as well. Just going for a walk in the woods. Exactly. Tony, do you want to tell us a bit about Hope Church? Yeah, we've not been meeting since March. Just feeling that even when we're allowed to meet, the restrictions and the risks associated it don't make it uh, worthwhile interesting that the churches that I know that have opened the the people who are missing are the families and very few families are going to worship even if they're allowed to what we've done is similar to what Lucy has talked about is we've provided some materials that families can do with amongst themselves plus have regular zoom 
gatherings for different age groups so that the kids themselves can just get together. We've also tried to incorporate where we can in our recorded morning services, contribution from children, uh, children doing readings, just chatting, so that there is that sense of being family all together. Our youth group did meet in the season, sort of over the summer when you could, the, the youth group would meet on a Friday night in a safe sort of environment. But on the whole, it's been very disruptive. But interesting, mm-hmm. and in the answer about safeguarding, as far as the church is concerned, so if safeguarding becomes easier. However, the concern is just in terms of grooming online and the kids being much more stuck at home and living their lives online does create a whole new set of problems that we're aware of and sort of trying to encourage parents to be sensible towards. Yeah, we, we spoke about this at our community safeguarding forum last week, you know, and just trying to think that now's the time when everyone is having to, being forced to use you know, computers more and be more familiar with how kind of different online spaces work and the kind of safety measures you can put in place and the risks that are involved as well. Now's really the time to make sure that we're working with children and parents to make sure they can properly understand how to use a computer safely, how to be online safely and embed that practice and that behaviour going forward. So I think it's definitely something kind of on everyone's radar that we don't have a choice anymore, but to know how to, to interact online safer. I think that's pretty, what what Tony and Lucy has said is pretty much the picture nat- nationally, and you know it, certainly the same at St Mary's, and I think totally underline what you're saying, Melissa. We've got to take this seriously as life has moved so much online. We've got to have a very strong, rigorous safeguarding presence online. Yeah, and I just wondered as well, Tony. You mentioned about um, a lot of the churches that are open. It's families that are missing from actually coming to the in-person services. And I wonder, does that mean that obviously so a lot of the people who are coming are individuals and actually that's probably a really important thing for them in terms of having some kind of social support and interaction? Do you think that's kind of a big part of it or is it also perhaps the risk that families you know, feel that that's the reason why they don't come as well? I think it's just with the restrictions that are there, it doesn't become a very meaningful uh, experience for families uh, because mm. it's sitting still um, not being able to to move, wearing face masks, socially distanced, that it, it just it's not a meaningful experience for, for families. And so why yeah. run the risk, I, I think, is yeah. the basic. So, yeah. that, that would be the thinking, certainly in our situation as well. And are, are there any, um, in addition to the, the online safety kind of aspects, are there any other of requests or or ask of support that you get from families in terms of you know just general support for how things are at the moment can can i jump in there hi i've arrived slightly late but here i am you should introduce yourself i think rahana yes i'm uh, rahana fersel i am uh, co-chair of faces alongside tony thompson slightly late due to um perhaps ironically um tech issues <laughs> but but i'm here and i'm really interested in hearing my colleagues talking about what's been happening um in churches i think there's been lots of similar things but i think the scale of what we've had to do uh, certainly in luton and certainly within our mosque has been a lot larger so um you know i heard i think lucy uh, mentioned that they've got 20 children in in her church and i think 
our mosques have something like two, three, four hundred children that, you know, they they engage with every week. So in terms of scale, that's a, a lot you know, a, a huge job. But I think, you know, many of them have, have um, I think, if not all of them have kind of risen to that challenge. Um, lots of kind of online stuff happening. But just to kind of go back to your, your question about other kinds of support, I think the thing that's really struck me the most, and I think even on, on a personal level, I think it's the grief, you know, that we're having to deal with right now. The number of deaths, particularly within Luton's Muslim community, has been not too dissimilar, I think, from the national picture, but has been huge and, and disproportionate. And that's been difficult because there is, um, there is a process, I suppose, that, you know, the machinery kicks in when somebody passes away, you know, in, in inverted commas, normal circumstances where as a community we can get together, we support one another, there are these um, rites and rituals that we perform, that we, we're able to perform for our loved one who has passed away. And in this context, many families haven't been able to do that. And I think that's really um, hurt the, um, it's hurt the mourning process. And I think there's that impact on the individual family. But I think, I think we're all, we're all touched by it. I, I can't imagine that there's anybody who hasn't had a, somebody that they know who has passed away or somebody that they know who's been or is very ill from the virus and I think there's going to be there has been overwhelming feelings of grief compounded just by the way that we're living so lack of um, connectedness I see it quite a lot also within um, elderly members of our community who are who are losing friends but not being able to take part in their funeral prayers you know really overwhelming sense of of grief out there and grief and loneliness combined and I think that's where we've had something of a, a job of, of, of trying to stay connected um, with members of our community trying to pick up where there are families who are struggling with grief and bereavement and supporting the, those families not just for you know a week or two weeks like we might have um, normally but for as an as an ongoing process um, and I think that's the thing that's probably really stood out for me in terms of COVID and and the way that faith institutions have had to you know think differently do differently and I think we can't overlook how much that impacts our capacity as adults to be as kind of aware of all the other things that we want to think about when we're safeguarding children and working with children um, and also obviously we can't overlook the impact of on children of this kind of kind of collective trauma and grief as well. I think that's right I, I just reflect on um, a story that our own uh, vicar at St Mary's, Mike Jones, tells how his family were impacted a hundred years ago by the Spanish flu outbreak, where a great grandfather, I guess, had returned from the war the previous year and, and died. And the, it had an impact on the family through several generations, such that it's impacted him. And that's the trauma of a pandemic a hundred years ago. And so it, it is a real challenge for us as a faith community to handle trauma in families that goes on. Can I ask um, Rahana, just listening to you, I mean, it's really my first reflection is, you know, just that it's become a cliche already, but the, that thing of not being in the same boat, but also probably not being in the same storm because of the disproportionality of the impact of this in different communities. Have you seen the communities adapt and find ways, you, you talked about, supporting people for longer have there been ways to adapt to what it means to grieve within the Muslim faith where certain rituals have not been possible 
I think there's a number of things that we we've done to respond to that so and, and this will be across faith but finding ways yeah. for people to be involved even if they're not present and that might be just simple things like really guiding people through prayer and you know doing that over the telephone or or, or talking to people um, and I remember a conversation my husband was having with somebody the other day and kind of talking really slowly through the process uh, he, he was involved in the burial and all the rituals that went beforehand of somebody's relative and kind of really talking slowly about what happened and what he did and what it what it means actually the pandemic has a has a position within within faith as well so this the, you know the illness has a, has a position death from an illness like this has a has a particular position and and sort of status in Islam and having those conversations and helping people to you know reconcile their their grief in some way all of that has been has been part of the process but I think for us you know it's been that kind of how, how do we involve people that can't be there but also you know re- remind people of all of those kind of connections with our faith and I think one of the conversations I remember me having is somebody felt like their father had had less of a funeral because because they didn't have those things but actually talking it through and saying actually there was something more in this for him there was something greater in this for him um, and, and just having to, I suppose, tell a different story about death and what it means. There's definitely something about multiple experiences of loss, isn't there? That without wanting to com- com- compare types of, of loss, I think when we're talking about children and young people, it's probably safe to say that all of them will have experienced loss um, of some of something meaningful, whether that's extreme loss or whether that's the loss of something they were looking forward to or some structure in their life that brought joy or meaning or friendship. And, and so there's definitely been a responsibility to notice that and to reflect on that yeah. and to help them name it and try and make sense of it. And I think that's really important, the combination of kind of, you know, of grief that young people are experiencing in this kind of tumultuous world that we're in at the moment. I've had a, some might say, a bit of a preoccupation with kind of schooling and types of learning and exams being cancelled and not cancelled and the reason why I think that I've been so invested in it is because you feel all of that other trauma and you just think actually this is something you know whether it's um, how how they're engaging with schoolwork, understanding what exams will be like understanding about their grades all of that kind of process um, and the fear and anxiety if we can take some of that away from them perhaps that will make the other, perhaps it won't overwhelm, you know, because you've got all of that other thing. So there are these multiple experiences. And and again, if we look at um, Luton, the Muslim community is perhaps also, not perhaps, the Muslim community is also the poorest community. So there's been, a, there's been an economic um, impact there. So families are suffering financially. Um, we're suffering through through death like everybody else we're trying to manage um, kind of education at home with perhaps fewer tools than other families will have and we've also um, to a not insignificant extent also had the finger of blame pointed at us Uh, so lots of discussion about you know um, BAME communities being more at risk because they're not breaking the rules which is not the case there are structural reasons institutional inequalities that put us at greater risk but that's another challenge that we've had to another burden that we've had to carry alongside everything else and undoubtedly 
all of this leaves a mark will and will be something that we will be um, grappling with for, for many years. That's all really, really good points. And I just wanted to go back and kind of underline, you know, the fact that I think faith communities and faith organisations are in a really unique position to support people through loss and death and, and grief. And actually, the significance of that is really huge, you know, when we're thinking about the amount of children and young people who may have experienced loss and that might even be you know before before the pandemic and, and during and, and to come um, but when we when we look at having lost someone in your household or, or as part of your close family being a, a factor of um, you know vulnerability actually being able to process that through a lens of, of faith and with children in a way that they can understand and take perspective mm. I think is a really good way of, yeah. of kind of lessening that vulnerability and strengthening children and young people um, I think it's really a, it's a really important point of connection between young people and their families as well. And I think Lucy touched on the importance uh, and, and, and yourself, Mel, and the importance of family and that connection. But I found that particularly through this, grief is something that we do often experience collectively, although we might have our kind of unique ways of doing it. But I think we've seen lots of really positive conversations between us and and parents and elders and you know that in turn being really positive uh, despite the kind of nature of the conversation positive conversations between those elders and the children so I think that's been one of the um one, again one of the important things that we've seen happening though though more of those conversations um had one of the things I'm reflecting on in terms of education is that when you have to be in the room and you have to have the material and work out with your child what they're meant to be learning and um, yes you in the background what they're meant to be learning and how you're meant to teach it you, you are invested in that process in a way that you're not obviously when that is invisible you send them to school and someone else is doing it and I've certainly noticed um, this is this is not not completely on the on the theme of safeguarding but in terms of faith and what is shifting in in this pandemic is some there's a trend in lots of churches for somebody to take the role of teaching the children and young people on a Sunday or in a youth group um, and some parents might be very invested in continuing to also do that at home but others might sort of almost outsource that to somebody who might be better at it or have thought about it more but in this time I'm sitting next to my daughter in the zoom call she's right here listening to me <laughs> and we're talking about we're talking about scripture together she's telling me what she thinks about what has been said and whether or not she agrees with it and how she interprets it um, and and that puts me in a different position to it as well and I think that is something that I have valued is that I've sort of been without meaning to I've been thinking so much more about how I talk about my faith and how I share it and how I make it make sense to somebody much smaller like um, me <laughs> thank you darling um also this is just to underline the point that um surprising things happen you might have a policy but then your child just takes the phone and is suddenly visible like to everybody me. like this in a way that you can't control <laughs> um and so you have to when it comes to safeguarding you have to be quite you have to really be quite thoughtful and you have to be quite responsive and be aware in the moment of what things mean and how you're going to how you're going to manage it excuse me while yeah. I meet myself and give her some more lunch I think we definitely underestimate just how much children are able to kind of understand more complex things and um, yeah. that are more complex than what we mm -hmm. tell them kind of as you know we don't just need to give them the basic facts 
sometimes they are able to kind of unpack yeah. some of the stuff behind that. Um, yeah, and homeschooling definitely helps provide that kind of opportunity. We really get the chance to to go through what we're talking about rather than just learning and repeating the facts back about something. I think, I mean, it's very interesting just listening to this conversation, what Rahana's just said and our responses to it. I've heard many conversations about the degree of pain and uh, of what's been happening in, within the Muslim community particularly, but actually having this conversation together about it now and its impact on family and the different dimensions of it it does again what we've so often found in our sort of faces grouping that actually the conversation we've had around sexual exploitation and abuse and safeguarding is is just open the way to sharing so much of life in a much richer way and I mean obviously there are there are safeguarding dimensions in terms of children's welfare they're not quite so closely related to abuse but the welfare dimension is such a strong feature of our concern at this time and and I, I think it's just the positive of this time has been families being together so much more and Lucy's drawn as, attention to aspects of that we've shared the positives but we've also shared and are sharing continue to share some of the real negatives and challenges of it and it's knowing how to to do that well and be attentive to our young people and children's whole welfare through this time definitely and, and the more we can support families with a broader kind of welfare approach and make sure that they have the things that they need and that they can get the support with the applications that they need support with doing and things like that what we're doing is strengthening that child or that young person's protective environment yeah in a better position to be able to safeguard them especially sort of in our absence if we don't have that in-person interaction like we normally would when they're at school or attending church or a mosque. We've we've known haven't we for a while that safety has all these different dimensions and and if you know if anything this 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 <laughs> this pandemic is presenting such a strong it's not opportunity it's stronger than that I think it's you know it's demanding that across society we we redress what is unjust and unfair in the in the way resources and opportunities are distributed across different groups and yeah. there's always a risk when it comes to anything like safeguarding that we just think of it in terms of this particular child this particular story it's individual we just follow these procedures we try to um protect and intervene as best we can at this point when it comes to light but if we think about it in its most holistic sense which where safety and welfare really you're right they are they have a clear relationship with each other as do resources the kinds of strain that families are under that we this is such an opportunity to to demand that the world looks fairer out the other side and that is that's the long-term view of safeguarding in its relation to systemic injustice and across the board i think people's emotions are heightened and so just aware that people react differently than they would do before and just being in zoom conversations with different people sometimes you, you just find people not being able to control their emotions and just feeling the impact then on kids or parents shouting at each other and losing it with each other some families in very confined situations where it's even more intense and so I think the safeguarding is it is an emotional one and it will have that impact. And it, the disproportionate way of resources that are there does mean that some are impacted far more than others. And we, we talked a bit about schools. And just from my experience, I've got family members who are in the 
profession and somebody uh, is teaching in a grammar school and they've got so many resources uh, that it's very easy to video lessons uh, they think that their kids are probably learning more at home via zoom lessons than they did in the classroom because the resources are there and they've not got the distraction of other people whereas on the other hand others just haven't got the resources to be able to to access education and so i think there is a, a polarization that's going to be happening and is happening and some kids are being disproportionately uh, adversely impacted it makes me think of the video oh, sorry not the video the photo of what was in the school lunch the yeah. school meal package that came out last week um, yeah. of what was yeah. meant to count for kids lunch for three days and part of why i found that really helpful is because we need concrete examples of what injustice looks like we need just to see both so it, may, it makes me think of um, those sometimes they are their exercises that are done to just help children see what another family's culture looks like to say show us what your lunch looks like show us what you eat for dinner in your home but really what we don't know unless we hear and and we actually our little bubble is burst and we can see something what is what is it like to be in this situation if you are if you are living in completely different circumstances and we need we need stories to be told i think that's partly why you know i, I really valued the kind of stories from lockdown work that you were doing melissa earlier i don't know if you're still doing that but we need to we need to know what disproportionality looks like it's got it's got it's got um it's not just a word is it <laughs> We need to see it so we can be shocked into knowing like, oh, you don't have that thing that I take for granted or you're trying to deal with that level of strain. I don't think I'd be able to do that. Yeah. And I think it's, it's easy for us to look at that in, well, easier for us to look at that in terms of having more and, and thinking about what people don't have. But actually, for a lot of children who have less and families, we have no idea actually of what kind of opportunities are out there for people who are in much more privileged situations circumstances and I think that and again going a bit off topic but we've heard a lot about how the impact of school closures how that will really make a, a much further gap between disadvantaged pupils and more privileged pupils in terms of their um, you know, how much they'll achieve um, through education but actually that gap is already there and I think when we when we're talking about who is going to fall behind the the people who are uh, you know in, in communities that experience poverty more anyway were already falling far behind and actually we should have been noticing that long before 2020 and been working much more proactively to get rid of that gap not just shorten the gap but actually get rid of that gap and make sure that education opportunities are equitable and actually all young uh, children and young people don't only get a chance at education but good quality education and you know your kind of success in life isn't determined by uh, the wealth of your family or whereabouts you live in the world. And, and I think that's that's probably well both of those examples are interesting in the in understanding one of the things that we talk about at face is about the invisibility of certain young people and the fact that there are um some young people whose pain and trauma that are more easily visible to us and others that we for whatever reason um we don't see you know with the first example with free school meals lots of you know we saw that there were really poor food packages being given out I mean, I know in Luton, we Muslim children will be were being given food that they couldn't eat. Yeah, not that yeah. they were just a small amount, not just that it was, um, you know, measly portions and not, but they were given pork. 
which yeah. which they they can't eat in terms of the kind of disadvantage we talk about disadvantaged children it seems more controversial to add to that that actually if you are a person of color if you're from a minoritized group um, in Britain, you are far more likely to be within that disadvantaged cohort. Um, and and when we when we kind of step into that part of the conversation, things get things get more uncomfortable and perhaps even controversial. Those <coughs> facts become more controversial than the fact of children, um, you know, not getting fed, but also kind of looking at the the uniqueness or the individual circumstances of children and how we're not meeting meeting the needs of whole groups of young people and I think sometimes even with the best of intentions um, and perhaps I'm going um, perhaps I'm going into even murkier water here but I, I found it really interesting that there was so much energy around Christmas this year acknowledging that children had 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 missed out on so much and it's important A, a festival, an occasion that was important to them, we didn't see it as a community. By and large, I mean, unless we were Muslims ourselves, you know, we did, we did, we did what we could within our communities. But um, it, it's not something that's picked up by everybody else. So we could, you know, we can see Christmas, or people could see Christmas because it was something that they could relate to personally. So you know, Christmas is something they can relate to. The desire for Christmas presents is something they could relate to. But Muslim children and their desire for an Eid celebration was something that's not even on our radar. That sounds like it's quite detached from what we do at Faces, but actually it's completely relevant as to how, how do we keep our eye on those children that we don't necessarily relate to, that we don't necessarily, that don't necessarily look like us, that we don't see in the, in the real sense all the time. But how do we, how do we nurture, care for well, their well-being, the welfare? How do we do that? for children from minoritized groups, because we're certainly not doing it at the moment. Yeah, and I think what, what you've said really, it reflects the context that we're in. Um, and I think that's why it's very hard for a lot of people not to, um, even though I suppose we could argue actually it doesn't when we look at actually a lot of young people in Newton being Muslim and not celebrating Christmas. But I think it can be very hard for people to see the problems and, and understand how to uh, perhaps address things differently when we're so used to certain things being normal and other things being other and without people understanding why that is and and how to go around addressing that it's very slow change um but yeah. our our course um our identity and inclusion course that will hopefully provide an opportunity for both organizations and individuals and families um to really reflect on what the standards are that we frame responses around and that we create narratives around and look at some of the harm that those certain standards can cause in terms of missing um, certain groups of people um, and not being able to respond to their needs. Absolutely, and I and I think you know we we always talk about these things being kind of you know a slow change that's going to happen, but and 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 you were absolutely right in your analysis there that you know we got used to the idea of what is normal and the idea of what is not normal. And there are groups of children that we are letting know quite um, in, in no uncertain terms that, that they are, are not normal. I mean, just responding to that again, totally hear what you're saying, Rahana and, and Melissa as well. And we see, we're seeing different things. We're seeing different, the different things because of the technology, because of the situation and so on. And 
things that we haven't experienced and seen before, but which have been there are being uncovered and others are not so easily seen. Just as we see into people's families through this wonderful technology when we see uh, Lucy's daughter eating her lunch and, and if we were to see Rihanna, we would see probably some of her young people. Um, but we, we're seeing different things. We're seeing the pain and we're seeing the suffering and we're seeing the disadvantage that so many are carrying and and that's it's very evident when we listen and i think the value of this sort of conversation across our different communities is that we're seeing things that we don't often see and hear and we need to pay attention to that and as a christian as church leaders i know we we are keen to do that and i tell you myself and lucy speaking and listening to this as christian leaders would would want to respond to that and say how can we you know we we want to do more we are seeking to do more for the welfare of our children, which which is obviously of huge concern. Safeguarding is is one particular aspect of that, but safeguarding is about overall welfare. And that's what is very clear. This this situation has opened up very deeply to us. And the ongoing principle that we do need to listen to each other, find yeah. contexts where you can hear people and not othering people. And the danger is that in different parts of the world, there is this polarization and the demonization of others, the blaming of others, which we've talked a little bit about. And just somehow we've got to get into the heart of our society, the need not to shout at each other, but to listen to each other, to try to put yourself in other people's shoes and understand where they're coming from. And I think we have tried to model some of that, but I just think that principle is a really key one that needs to be heard and lockdown hasn't necessarily helped it there has been this demonization of others the seeking of blaming others and that things have been polarized rather than brought together and because of you know the current circumstances we also peter you sort of touched on this already but we have those uh, extra opportunities to engage with people um, whether it's just looking at you know how many things we can offer online even though we could have offered that before but it just wasn't as much on our radar and also as negative as seeing the sort of inequalities and injustices that happen and how much the last year has highlighted those things but actually they were already existed and so if they're highlighted that's a good thing because it hopefully means that there'll be a lot more a lot more work done around kind of addressing those issues yeah. i mean just one example I, I i think of the way we see things i mean because of my relationships here and with others i follow on facebook a number of muslims and and muslim institutions that so regularly i will see you know such and such is brought is broadcasting live and it will be a funeral from of a member of the muslim community and that i see that coming up on my screen maybe sometimes several times a day and if i have a moment or two i will drop in on that and probably try and do so for a period of time because it reinforces and opens up to me something i'm not seeing normally in my normal sphere of life and actually i think we just need to be very attentive to the to see the things that we don't normally see and to be alert to them and to be alert to other people's suffering because behind that funeral, the death of that individual, lie families that are carrying the sort of issues and concerns that Rahana shared with us. And that, you know, when we put these things together, we realise the overall suffering within our communities and the, the impact upon young people's lives. It really makes me wonder how we hear from children and young people in these times as well as just thinking as sort of professionally as a researcher it's 
it's really hard to work out ethically yeah. whether it's right to try and ask children, young people questions about what this is like for them, because mostly because the only technology you can really use is, is online and everything has gone online. The demands on adults in the world have gone online yeah. and, and you're sort yeah. of right at the periphery of that as a researcher. You don't know them. You don't have those relationships necessarily. And that's been, but I feel this kind of tension, this ethical tension between don't burden an overburdened group and don't put any additional strain on. And no, particular, no. don't ask anything of gatekeepers who are desperately just trying to keep check with children, young people, check they're okay, um, check families are afloat. They don't, they're not thinking about research. And then there's other ethical question, which is how do we hear what life is like for them? How do they speak to us as adults beyond their immediate family when this experience of this pandemic is all heard through the voice of adults? And there are there are projects out there that are trying and doing and, and doing a good job but um i think we should where we where they where that is happening where young people are sharing what is happening what our perspective is in whatever medium we should mm. amplify that so we can hear what they have to say that's interesting oh. uh, I, I just you just reminded me of something um i was reading um from the nspcc a report about you know what children and young people had shared about, about the pandemic over the last few months and kind of going back to school and there was a lot of different things shared and I think that's why it is really important that those um, stories are captured and because there will always be something that's new to us even if we do feel like we have a, a general understanding of what people are experiencing um, and one of the things that really stayed with me is uh, a young person saying how traumatizing having to use or you know having to do everything online was for her because of the abuse she'd experienced um, through technology several years ago um, and actually the expectation of her to have to in, stay in touch with her friends only through Snapchat or what, whatever it was she was using and then use Zoom or, or Google Classrooms to have to engage with, engage with her teachers and her schooling and actually how difficult that was. And I think that's something, you know, that, that was something that hadn't occurred to me that there would be pe young people in that position. Um, and also, I suppose it speaks to perhaps some of the parents who may have experienced abuse online and now, again, like we said, being forced to have to use all of this different technology to make sure that their child can now access education. And that's a very complex kind of situation to be in. Um, and I think we do need to think about how we can support people, not only families who don't have access to technology, but families who, you know, may have access to technology, but actually it's it's not. It doesn't come without that level of trauma that's connected to it. That is uh, a fascinating, challenging dimension, Melissa. Thanks for listening. You can find out more about our work on our website, faces.org.uk.